Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. On this Communion Sunday, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians uh, in the New Testament, the letters of Paul, and after Romans in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, before Ephesians and uh, Philippians and Colossians, we come to Galatians. Now, this is uh, a letter written from Paul to a group of churches, not uh, to one specific church, a group of churches in South Central Turkey and the uh, province, Roman province known as Galatia. And while it's difficult for us to, to put an exact year on any uh, specific letter that Paul wrote, it does seem clear that this is one of the first, if not the first, letters that Paul wrote, likely around 50 or in the early 50s AD. And Paul wrote this letter specifically to defend the truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel, the truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel in the face of a group of Jews who did profess faith in Christ, but they were arguing that Gentile believers, sure, they could put their faith in Jesus to be forgiven for their sins, but if they wanted to keep in fellowship with God, they had to be circumcised and they had to obey the Mosaic law and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And Paul responds by directing our gaze firmly and directly on Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his salvation through faith in him. And that's really my aim and my desire for us over the next few months, that through this book we will take a several months long gaze at Jesus Christ through this letter and to consider what he has done for us and all that it means for us, for our salvation and for our life in him. So that's our our goal. I want to read this morning just verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of speaking to us, and we pray that you would be with us and that your spirit would preach these words to us and apply them to our hearts, that we might grow in our love for Jesus and our obedience to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you uh, flip over the pages of your Bibles, you would realize we have 13 letters from Paul 
to churches and to individuals in our Bibles. And so we've got a pretty good sample of how Paul writes a letter. Uh, maybe you, you would imagine uh, your, your grandparents having a box of letters from each other. And if you, if you read through the letters, you get to learn someone's style. Well, we've got a, a little box of letters here from Paul, and we can see how he writes. And on the one hand, Galatians starts with all of the very same elements that all of his letters start with. He tells us who's writing the letter, Paul, and he tells us who he's writing the letter to, in this case, to the churches of Galatia. And then he wishes them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The same greeting he uses in almost every of one of his letters. So, so far, so good. And yet, it takes us all of about three seconds to realize that something is different in this letter from all of the rest of Paul's letters. Paul almost always begins his letters by thanking God and praising God for the church and for the believers that he's writing to. And then he almost always follows that by telling the believers how he prays for them. And you might think, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to God when I remember you and I pray that your love may abound more and more. You know, you know how these letters start. That's the way uh, he, he writes to the Ephesians. It's the way he writes to the Philippians. It's the way he writes to the Colossians. It's the way he writes to the Thessalonians twice. He even starts with this kind of thanksgiving and praise to God for the Corinthians, saying, I thank God for you and his work among you, despite the fact that the Corinthians were suing each other, committing sexual immorality with each other, and were chock full of divisions and arrogance amongst one another. And he even thanks God for them. But he doesn't give any expression of thanks or prayer in his beginning to the Galatians. There's no pleasantries here. Instead of, I give thanks to God for you, where we would expect to find that in verse 6, we find, I am astonished at you. Uh, Something is different here with this letter to the Galatians, and the question is, why? Well, let's just consider the background, because the book of Acts actually tells us very clearly what the background to this letter is. You might remember that Paul began his very first missionary journey, taking the gospel out in Acts chapters 13 and 14. He was there at the church uh, of Antioch in Syria when the uh, church gathered together in prayer and at the direction of the Holy Spirit sent out Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. And after a very brief stop in Cyprus, Paul heads straight to the southern region of the province of Galatia. And if you sort of uh, envision the middle, uh, middle section of Turkey, and he goes to the southern portion of that middle, middle slice of Turkey, which was the Roman province of Galatia. Specifically, Acts tells us he stopped at the four major cities of southern Galatia, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In fact, almost the entirety of Paul's first missionary journey was spent in Galatia. So this is the first place Paul went. It was the first place he preached uh, the gospel. And we learn from Acts 13 and 14 that in each city that Paul went to, he began by preaching the gospel in the synagogue to the Jews in that city. And in each city, we read that some of the Jews responded to the gospel. Acts uh, 13, 43 says, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul. 
But in each case, many of the Jews also rejected the gospel and rejected Paul. And in fact, as you go through these four cities, with increasing vehemence, tried to go ahead of Paul or meet up with Paul and undermine him and undercut him in the cities that he was going to. And as a result, this is what Paul said in Acts 13.46. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what did the first churches in Galatia look like? Well, the first churches in Galatia were a mix of Jew and Gentile, although the text seems to indicate that the Gentiles were probably larger in number. And remember, this is really the first missionary effort to the Gentiles. It's not the first Gentiles that believed, but it's the first real missionary effort to the Gentiles, and it's the first time that Jews and Gentiles have mixed significantly in the church. And in light of this fact, as Jews from Judea hear hordes of Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus and entering the church, well, they have a concern. And so we read in Acts 15, right after that uh, missionary journey, as Paul and Barnabas return, that Jews from Judea came out and said, hey, it's always been the case that Gentiles who want to come and be part of God's people are welcome to do so, but they've always had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses to do so. And so these Gentiles also should have to be circumcised and keep the law of God. Well, this sparked a great debate. It sparked the famous Jerusalem Council where apostles and representatives from the churches came together to consider the question but Acts 15 tells us that after praying and, and discussing the issue and hearing what God had done, the council declared and decided the Gentiles were cleansed by faith in Christ. They should not be required to, and they do not need to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses to be acceptable to God. That comes through faith in Christ. And Paul will actually make reference in Galatians chapter 2 to this council and this decision. However, Paul notes that despite that decision, there was a group he calls the circumcision party, a group of professing Jews who were not happy with this decision, and it seems that some of them traveled to the Galatian churches, these first churches Paul had preached to, and undermined Paul and argued against this decision, encouraging them to be circumcised and keep the law. And it seems that a number in the Galatian churches were being persuaded that they did need to obey Jewish law and be circumcised to honor God. And so it's in response to this news. You can trace it, Acts 13, 14, 15. And it's in response to that situation and that news that Paul, incensed at this attack on the sufficiency of Christ, writes the book of Galatians. Well, we've read the first five verses this morning. And I think we could summarize Paul's main point in these first five verses this way. Paul says, our salvation is entirely of God. It's from God because of the work of God to the glory of God. So we don't need to add 
anything to what God has done. Salvation is entirely from God, from God, because of the work of God, to the glory of God, so we don't need to add anything to it. That's Paul's main point here. And I want to consider those, those three points, that salvation's from God because of the work of God to the glory of God this morning. First, let's look at verses 1 through 3, where we find that salvation and Paul's ministry, for that matter, are from God. You see, right the first words of the letter, Paul makes this clear. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now remember what an apostle is. The word apostle literally means someone sent, a sent person. An apostle was an emissary who was sent out by someone uh, on their behalf. And Jesus referred to the twelve as his apostles, those that he commissioned and sent with the gospel. But you can imagine the reasoning of the circumcision party, can't you? you know, the circumcision party, they, shows up, they show up in Galatia. They're chatting around the table with the, the Galatians, and they say, you know, Jesus sent the 12 apostles directly. But Paul didn't even know Jesus. He wasn't even hanging around Jesus. And if he did hear about Jesus, he was opposed to him. He, he Paul, he heard all of this second and third hand. And like a game of telephone, Paul's just got it wrong. We can't trust Paul's decision. We need to listen to those who were in Israel with Jesus himself. So Paul says, no, this is not true. And he says it right from verse 1. He says, God is the one who sent me out at his representative. And I think any one of us who is a pastor would say something similar. I didn't just wake up one day and decide I'll be a pastor. No, I believe that God called me to this role and that those in the church believed the same thing. I think when we uh, think about what the Lord does in calling us and sending us, when I decided to go from teaching school to seeking ordination as a pastor, I did so because I believed God was the one calling me to do it. So I think we would all say that we're uh, called by God for those of us who are in ministry. But it would be very reasonable to say that my ordination, that my commissioning did come through men in the sense that God was calling me, but he used the church. He used those among us to call me and to, to lay hands on me. That would be a very appropriate way uh, to say it. But Paul says, that's not how it was with me. God called me, but he didn't use the church. He called me directly. It was the risen Christ himself who met me and told me to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And remember, you remember the story, right? In Acts chapter 9, Jesus, or, uh, excuse me, Paul, Saul at the time, on the way to Damascus to persecute those who believe in Jesus, when Jesus literally meets him on the road and knocks him flat on the ground by the appearance of his glory. And he says, Paul, I am Jesus. Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you should do. And he goes into the city, and the message he receives, the instructions he receives are, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. And so contrary to any claim from the circumcision party, Paul says, no, Jesus did meet me. Jesus is the one who directly called me. My call is from God through Jesus 
himself. So you can trust the gospel that I've preached to you. That's Paul's first point. But then in verse 3, Paul adds, it's not just his calling that is from God. It's the grace and the peace that he has announced to the Galatians that is from God. You see it there in verse 3, grace and peace to you from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are good church words, grace and peace. Let's remember what they mean. Grace is God's undeserved kindness. It is the favor of God towards us that we didn't earn or merit. And peace is the restored, reconciled fellowship with God and with one another that comes through Jesus Christ. All of the blessing, all of the joy, all of the freedom of our salvation in Christ can be summarized in those words. God's grace, his undeserved kindness to you, and God's peace, our reconciled fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is that this grace and this peace are both gifts from God. We didn't wake up one morning, roll out of bed, and say, hmm, I think I'll go get some salvation from Jesus today. Nor is there any checklist we can complete, no set of rules we can follow that will cover our sinfulness, change our hearts, and bring us into submission to God. No, that only happens when Jesus comes to us and says, here is what I have done for you. Come, receive it from me in faith. And we receive grace and peace as gifts from God through Jesus. So that's the first point Paul makes. All of this, my calling, my gospel, grace and peace to you from God, it's all from God through Jesus Christ. But next I want to look at verse 4, and I want us to see that not only is everything from God, but the gospel and our salvation is only possible because of God, because of the work of God. I mean, just, just consider ourselves for a minute, and this should be fairly clear, and if we have any trouble honestly considering ourselves, just ask your spouse or your kids uh, or your neighbor, and they will probably help you. And the clear question is, how is it that broken lost, self-focused sinners like us can possibly receive grace and peace from God? How can God in His justice and His holiness be reconciled to us and welcome us as His children? And Paul tells us, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. I think it's striking, and I hope you notice when Paul says this, that when Paul talks about our hope of salvation, he doesn't outline a new religious philosophy. He doesn't talk about a way of life. He goes to history and talks about facts. He tells us what God did for us in the first century in Palestine to save us. In history, Jesus willingly offered himself up on the cross. You notice that Jesus' death wasn't an unexpected plot twist. God wasn't sitting back thinking, oh no, they got Jesus, what do I do now? This was not blood unwillingly given. No, this is Jesus who said in history, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord that I might redeem my people. Jesus gave himself. And why did Jesus give himself? For our sins. The fundamental problem separating us from grace and peace from God was not our ignorance, 
The fundamental problem was not that we just hadn't thought about this yet or didn't know about certain parts of it yet. The fundamental problem separating us from God was our sin. Sin is our nature, turned away from God to live for ourselves, attempting to do life in the way that seems best to us and reliance on ourselves rather than God. That determination is a rejection of our Creator King, and it is a determination that leads to death and deserves death. But Jesus gave Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. His blood was shed in our place. He took the death that we deserved. Jesus' death on the cross was, above everything else, a sin offering. Or he died shedding his blood that we might be forgiven and saved. And just consider this. If it took the blood of Jesus Christ to earn our salvation, what hope do we have that there is anything we could do to merit or earn that salvation? Nothing if it took the blood of the Son of God to accomplish our salvation. Well, Jesus gave himself up. Why? He gave himself up for our sins. Why did Jesus give himself up for our sins? Well, you see what the text says. In order to deliver us from this present evil age. The Bible regularly divides all of history into two ages. There is this age, and then there is the age to come. And all of history falls in this this uh, division of this age and the age to come. This age is the realm of the prince of this world where we are in bondage under sin without God and without hope in the world. The age to come is under the reign of Jesus Christ. It's the kingdom of God where all things are put under Christ's feet and made new by the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. But the best news in all of history is that the age to come has actually already broken into this age. It broke into this age when Jesus broke into this world. And now this present evil age and the age to come are actually both running over top of each other, if you will, in this world. And the question is, will we belong to this age or to the age to come? And what Paul says is, Jesus came to rescue us out of this present evil age to bring us into the kingdom of Christ in the age to come. Jesus came to perform a rescue operation to get us out of this present evil age. He went to the cross and was raised again that we might be delivered, that we might enjoy the grace and peace that come in relationship with Jesus. What I love about this verse is it tells us that the forgiveness of our sins is at the heart of our salvation because we cannot be reconciled to God apart from the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus died in order to forgive us. And yet, why did Christ cleanse us from sin? What happens when we are reconciled to God and brought back into communion with Him? Well, what happens is this. The risen Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to make us new creations and to dwell in us so that we become living representatives of the age to come in this world. Now already we have new life in Christ. Now we are set free from the bondage of sin in this world. Now we are under the lordship of Jesus. Now we do all things for him because already in him we belong to the age to come.
So we ask ourselves, why are those who follow Christ to look different and to act different than the world? Well, it's not because we're self-righteous or we think we just know better than everyone else or that we just have different opinions than everyone else. That's not it at all. It's because if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we belong to him, we're actually from a different age. I was thinking about that this week. I thought, can you imagine if time travel was actually a real thing? And someone from 1776 showed up and joined us today? Well, how long would it take you to realize they're not from our time? It wouldn't take you long at all. They would dress differently and they would talk differently and they would certainly smell differently because they didn't have daily showers and deodorant back then. Right? You would take us no time at all to say something's different because they're from a different age. And see, that's what's to be true of us who are in Jesus Christ. We are from a different age. And that should be evident by a life that is lived not according to this present evil age, not according to this world and its opinions and beliefs and standards, but under the lordship of Jesus and in obedience to Jesus by the power of the spirit of the risen Jesus and the joy of our salvation, even as we're waiting for that age to come to finally arrive when our king comes again. See, that's what has happened in this world, thanks to Jesus Christ. And don't miss that all this happened according to the will of God the Father. It was his desire, his love for the world that led him to send his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so yes, says Paul, our salvation is entirely, 100%, completely the work of God, who sent his son, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age according to to the will of God the Father. And if that's the case, then it shouldn't surprise us one iota that Paul's last point in verse 5 is that all the glory goes to God forever and ever. As Pastor Phil Riken put it this way, I love the way he wrote it. He said, these facts of the gospel Paul has just outlined don't contain a single word about anything we do. They simply document what God has done for us in human history through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. God the Father came up with the gospel plan. God the Son made the willing sacrifice. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Together, Father and Son announced the good news of salvation to the world through the teaching of the apostles whom they commissioned. And together they apply it to our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom they send. So if it's all of God... No wonder all the glory goes to God. After all, the only thing we can do, which is of no credit to us, is just receive the gift that has been given to us through faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. He said, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is to satisfy his justice against us, to be received by faith. At no point in the process does our salvation cease to be all the work of God. At no point is there anything we do that now we take credit for 
to make it happen. All we do is receive it by faith, and therefore it's all to God's glory. A couple weeks ago, I was approached by a very thoughtful third grader in our congregation. This third grader said to me, she said, Dr. Walker, may I please have a word with you? Now, this is a little frightening because that's something along the lines of what an old boss of mine might say when something was uh, wrong. But she proceeded to ask me a series of very good theological questions. We covered ground from, is a baby a sinner the second they're born? To, why did God let Adam and Eve sin? And we went all the way back, but eventually we came to the topic of God's glory and God doing all things from his glory. And she said to me, well, that's another problem. Because it seems like God just wants to get all the glory for himself. And isn't that awfully proud and selfish? We aren't supposed to want to get all the glory for ourselves. It really is a very good question, isn't it? But in response, we need to remember two things. First, we need to remember that the reason it was so, and is so, inappropriate for us to want get, to get glory for ourselves is because we don't deserve that glory. We are the creatures under the hand of the sovereign God. He is the one who deserves glory, not us. So the central problem is who we are. But God is God, the creator, the one who is all glorious. And giving him all glory is exactly what he deserves and is worthy of. So we need to remember that. But second, in the beautiful kindness of God, beholding God's glory and giving God glory is what we were created to do. And it is where we find our greatest joy and satisfaction as well. I mean, just just think about it. If you've ever been to a, a concert hall and heard a truly excellent performance of a Beethoven symphony, or if you've ever uh, watched perhaps the Olympics and seen a stunning gymnastics floor routine, or, or any other example of power and beauty on display that takes our breath away, we don't sit there and clap because we have to. No, our, our applause is part of the way we enter in and express our delight. It's part of the way that we engage and enjoy the beauty that is on display. Well, in a far greater way, God's glory is the most beautiful, powerful, delightful display of what is good and what is praiseworthy in all creation. And we were created, we were hardwired to enjoy that glory and that beauty and to participate in it by giving praise and honor to it. And so to borrow from John Piper, we are most delighted and satisfied when we see God's glory and give praise to what is truly excellent. And he is most glorified when we are taking delight in his beauty and his excellencies. And what greater display of his glory and excellence can we imagine than his love and his mercy and justice displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ when he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age that we might receive grace and peace from him through faith in Jesus Christ. And so considering all of this, the posture of every believer should be one of ready worship, rejoicing in and giving praise to God as we behold his glory in such a great salvation. And that's what we're doing as we come to the table this morning. 
as we come to this table in front of us, we have another reminder of this grace and this salvation. A table which invites us to commune with the Lord, which reminds us of our salvation from the Lord as in another opportunity for us to worship and to proclaim what the Lord has done until he comes. So may we rejoice in him and rejoice to proclaim it until we meet him again. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, which reminds us of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And oh, how we pray that we would find our great joy in seeing what you've done for us and praising you for your excellencies and your love in Jesus Christ and finding our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.